0: This is Aliens and Artists. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. We are in conversation with filmmaker Jonathan Berman, director of Calling All Earthlings, a documentary examining the intriguing life of George Van Tassel, who built the storied Integratron at the behest of non-human entities. The Integratron is a massive technological device designed to suspend the laws of gravity, extend human life, and facilitate Time travel It's also an architectural wonder and unique in the realm of contact and forming creativity
1: hey Stuart, thank you so much for this opportunity to speak on your podcasts. I think it's a great subject artists and aliens and I love what you're doing with it uh, yeah the case of the curious case of George van Tassel really is something you know I've spent years looking at it and I still am of multiple opinions you know multiple perspectives on George let me give you a little background. He's a total mid-century mid 20th century man devout from Ohio, Christian strong striking you know he looked like a what we'd call a starker like a strong farmer type. George, you know, I'm not sure. I don't know if anyone's found any evidence on this. It's very possible that he had been doing some like crop dusting. You know, you don't need a license to uh, to do that as a as a kid. So you can actually fly an airplane on any age, which is really crazy. But you're licensed because if you work on your family's farm, you have to dust the crops. But George had an aptitude and fascination with aviation in Ohio. Did got some training. Did not graduate. High school, as far as I know, but really was drawn out west. You know, California, and particularly Southern California, was really the 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 nexus of aeronautics, uh, aviation work. It was where it was all going down. And George came out here, and he wound up working for a bunch of different companies, including Howard Hughes, and allegedly becoming Hughes's, and I put this in quotation marks, personal flight assistant. So. What happened was, you know, the war was World War II was cranking and and people were needed in those industries, and George was doing well at it. And at that time, he was already involved in some kind of mystical pursuits, uh, certainly some uh, meditative pursuits and, and some writings. But actually, let me back up a little bit. Before he became an aeronautic aviation worker, and actually union leader for a while george worked for his uncle out in santa monica who had a garage it's the depression guy comes along his car is broken down he's like an old grizzled miner the german accent and he you know regales him with this tale of of his gold mine out in the desert near joshua tree and back then really it was really nothing out there but he managed to uh have taken this old air force base and uh, gotten the lease to it and was mining for gold out there and he said look do me a favor fix my car and stake me a few dollars fifty dollars or something and I'll, i'll cut you in on the on the property and the and the scene out there you know so what happened was this guy frank kreitzer this is the miner they fixed the car frank goes back sends them postcards from out in the desert one day, Kreitzer's out there, and imagine it's World War II, right? And he's a miner, so he has explosives. He also has shortwave radio equipment. He may or may not have been a German national. I think he actually was born in the States. But he's kind of a, a crabby loner with aircraft and mining caps and all that and radio gear. So they, you know, <laughs> uh, <some> people, <laughs> yeah, some people from the sheriff's department, some uh, some deputies from San Bernardino, because it's on the border, headed over there. And if you've ever been to the Integratron, and I recommend everyone check it out and make sure you have a reservation because it's very popular once we get through this pandemic, and we will, that he had this underground chamber that he lived in, very smart, because it's really hot out there and you you can cool down in this chamber. And he refused to come out. And they said, look, well, there's different, like a lot of of issues around Ventassel, there's multiple stories and multiple sh- perspectives. But one of them is that he said, You're not going to take me alive, you know, and he blew himself up. Another is they shot down into the uh, underground residence storage chamber and blew up the dynamite. But Kreitzer dies, and Ventassel, you know, a few years later, the war ends, and like I said, the, the some of the aeronautics work dries up. And he goes out there with his family, you know, and, you know, just imagine George and uh, his already long-suffering wife go out to the desert and the blood is splattered on the walls of this cave. He, for some reason, he takes a liking to it. You know, like there's always, ever since the beginning of modern civilization, people have wanted to get out of the city, built the first (laughs) city in ancient Rome. And they're like, we got to get away for the weekend. So it really... So going back to the country is an archetypical phenomenon of, of people. He wanted to go back to the country and get out of, you know, dirty, gritty Los Angeles. There's another version of this story as well, which is that he had befriended and worked for Hughes. And Hughes had asked him to work on some secret aircraft work that he was doing at his uh, desert base, which still is not that well known. But but Hughes had a big research facility out in the desert, not too far from from giant rock so in any case he goes out there and they start doing channeling Well, first they start doing christian prayer stuff you know america was once a country where people were neighborly and nice to each other and i hope that's coming back it seems like maybe it is so he would just invite all his neighbors over for uh sing-alongs you know they'd sing secular songs they'd sing christian songs and then he started channeling these entities you know Like, he heard voices, you know, religious channelings, you could say. And he said he thought they came from all directions at once. Yeah, and in 1952, he started hearing these voices from space people with names like Hulda and Lata and Singba and Molka and, of course, Ashtar. So, in 1953, so he's already having these contacts. It's full moon, late August. What George said was that a A ship from Venus landed, and a man wearing a jumpsuit stood at the foot of his sleeping bag and said, I am Solganda, and I would be pleased to show you my craft. And he said he sounded like the actor Ronald Coleman. You'll have to watch old movies to know who Ronald Coleman is, but a a good voice with gravitas. (laughs) And he looked and he saw this glittering, glowing spaceship few hundred yards away and he said he was led into the craft and stepped into this buttered colored light coming from underneath it and was taken on a tour of the ship and that he had been chosen to bring a message of peace and interplanetary brotherhood to earth and it was here that he was shown or downloaded the principles of cellular rejuvenation and time travel, which later led to the creation of the Integratron. And that construction of that work would consume him for the next 25 years.
0: What a brilliant and concise summary of what led up to the Integratron. How impactful to know, in many ways, that was just the beginning of Van Tassel's saga. When he began channeling entities, is it known how that was received by his fellow Christians, his family, his associates?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I, you know, if you've spent any time out in the desert, I will say what I love about being out there. And I was just kind of drawn out there is that people are more accepting and are nicer than city people. You know, last time I was in Joshua Tree, I was like, Oh yeah, I remember why I like it out here. People are cool. You know? yeah. So I think there's more acceptance. You know, you had uh, veterans living out there in uh, what they call jackrabbit shacks that were given to them by the government. You had homesteaders, you have miners, and other discontents, you know. So I, I think there was more latitude for this kind of thing. But I don't have any first-hand uh, collaboration.
0: About. One striking facet in Van Tassel's channeling and contact with non-human intelligence is its specificity. Channeling, entities, directives being issued, messages of peace, those are all fairly boilerplate. But those directives and messages are typically vague and amorphous. They're not enactable. In Van Tassel's case, it could not have been more specific. Build this machine. Here's a blueprint. Such a concrete, practical objective. It's the only building we have of this kind that I'm aware of. Is this where Van Tassel's story bifurcates from standard contactee accounts?
1: Well, that's a great question. You know, remember that after Robert Arnold saw what he saw up in washington state there was a kind of you know zeitgeist you know spirit of the times in the air and you know as we know there was the atomic bomb blast in 45 i think summer of 45 and the manhattan project was successful and so that according to ventassel as well as other contactees because there were other contactees as you know that was what kind of rank, rankled the aliens and they were concerned not just about the earth, but also about the, uh, the whole solar system, and particularly wow. the hydrogen atom. They were concerned about that as well. But, you know, George is tuning in these psychic radio. He was like a psychic radio operator tuning in these messages. But you're right. Does it remind you of anyone from the Bible? This this like, go and build this. <laughs> and Noah.
0: Exactly. It does. Great line to draw there, and I love how you frame the context, the age this was happening in. The advent of the Cold War, the atomic age, surge in technology, and also in threat of nuclear annihilation. The Integratron seemed to be a countervailance, an ostensible game-changer. But one wonders how the non-human intelligences thought something so conspicuous would go unnoticed. It seems obvious it would draw attention to itself.
1: I don't know about that. I mean, first of all, just just to uh, go back to that uh, connection between Noah and everything, you know, George was seeped in uh, Christian uh, ideology, and he actually talked about the Ark of the Covenant uh, and the Ark of Electricity, A R C and A R K. So he was already onto this kind of connection, saw himself as almost a quasi biblical character. You know, I would say that in his defense and in defense of any possible space beings that it really was in the middle of nowhere. And he at first he when he after he got it to a certain point, he fenced it in. He wasn't invite it wasn't like a tourist attraction like it is now. He didn't really want people poking around unless they were going to fund it.
0: But he held festivals with thousands of people in attendance on the property. Yeah. Well, well that's
1: and- true. That's true. There were the spacecraft conventions. I mean, that was at one look at what I mean. I am of many minds on George Van Tessel because we could talk about some of the technology and stuff, and some of it's really fast.
0: I would love to, definitely.
1: Yeah. So I, I think he was on to some things. On the other hand, as you saw in the film, I also have this feeling he was a little bit of a huckster. You know, like they all are, like Edison himself, you know, although Tesla was not. (laughs) And speaking of Tesla, of course, Tesla was a great inspiration to him. But he was, you know, part messianic figure, part carnival barker, and part backyard scientist. But definitely uh, some intriguing work, which I think was way ahead of his time, you know.
0: Yes, but also Van Tassel is not an instance of mere chicanery or merely deceptive theatrics it's richer than that tell us how he purportedly gets these blueprints how he downloads the plans so to speak what was entailed in assembling the structure and what it's for
1: oh my god okay (laughs) that's a lot (laughs) well the blueprints are you know downloaded like the way you download a file except into his brain you know yeah but he also talked about his other influences. It wasn't just this alien influence. It was also influence from Tesla and a couple of other people who were involved in various work. Now, one of the main themes, and it really resonated with Southern California then and now, was our lifespan is too short. And George said, just as we get some wisdom, we die. One of his favorite quotes was Corinthians 1526, which says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So, you know, this was going to be a a regeneration laboratory building that would use frequencies, a broad range of frequencies to counteract aging through electrostatic activity to rejuvenate ourselves. So one thing I I definitely give him credit. First of all, it's just a, a magnetic likable figure and You know, I've been thinking about this, and I think there's a possibility. You know, like we talk about mental illness here, over the you know we've learned a lot over the last I don't know 50 years or so. One thing that just you know, because I'm not a scientist, I'm a filmmaker. So one thing I can say, in my opinion, is that we're really suffered from this disconnection from the fool and the king. And I was thinking about our recent political issues and the problem with the Trump is that he was both the fool and the king. So the king is supposed to have counsel from the fool. And then I've read somewhere that this idea of the ship of fools was that they took all the crazy people and stuck them on a boat and separated them out from the logical people. And this was a kind of a tremendous loss. The age of enlightenment and science, in my opinion, was a good thing. But that connection to the channeled or what the mainstream would call crazy. We lost that, but I think George was in touch with that. And you know that a lot of our great actors and scientists and stuff have, you know, are on various spectrums, you know, I think it is possible that he was all those things. But in any case, he was influenced by some scientists, one of which was Dr. George Creel, Creel was the first surgeon to do a direct blood transfusion. So he was a doctor and he taught, in 1936 he wrote about every living cell is a battery. So George you know, was able to take some more complex ideas and kind of say, we just have to recharge our batteries like you charge your car battery. And then other George that he looked towards was a lesser known scientist named George Lakofsky, who did work in the 1930s to show that uh, cells admit and receive electromagnetic radiation, wrote this book called The Secret Life, Electricity, Radiation, and Your Body. So he invented this thing called the multiple wave oscillator, and the rings would oscillate and set up interference patterns among themselves and expose patients or subjects to multi-wave oscillating fields. There's devices out there now which do this, whether they work or not, I don't know. But you'd sit between two antennas to receive these oscillating electromagnetic fields. And of course, Tesla was another inspiration. And we know Tesla from his work with alternating current versus direct current, right, which he lost. He won against Edison, who was working with Direct Current. But one of the things that Tesla did that was pretty amazing is that he was the first person to kind of make this connection between negative ions and well-being. We all, any of us who've been around know that negative ions is what you feel after a thunderstorm and rainstorm. So George was going to use, combine all this wisdom, along with what he downloaded, to create this integrator on this machine, this domed machine that would work to rejuvenate your lifespan. And if a machine can do that, it also, in a way, is acting as a kind of time machine.
0: That group, George Creel to Lakovsky, Tesla, that preceded the contact from Solganda? Is that the correct timeline?
1: That was at basically around the same time. Okay. It kind of like was struck, you know.
0: Van Tassel was swimming in these waters, but then contact from Solganda was a focusing event. Is that a fair characterization?
1: How the sequence of time went, I'm not sure. It would be my guess that it all kind of came at once. Like George talks about it, like the way you're like, you're walking down the street and you're hit by a car or something. That's kind of what happened to him. It's almost yeah. like he was lit up. Save time, Stuart. This whole era of post-war America, you look at people like the Hells to, to make a to go take a jump cut, the Hell's Angels and these pulp magazines, like the soldiers came back and it was boring. Now, George was not in the war. He was in the home front working in for the aviation companies we spoke about, but uh on the home front. There was a kind of a listlessness and boredom and malaise among the returning soldiers. After all, they, had, they were heroes. They had seen action in Europe. They had met comely European women. Now they were just back in their lives here. My point here is that George subscribed to a lot of like really interesting pulpy magazines like Fact and like, you know, kind of like what Isaac Asimov and people like that were writing for kind of like pop boiler sci-fi. So, you have all these influences, you know, bona fide scientific influences, potentially channels or extraterrestrial influences, as well as this kind of American pulp uh, kind of uh, imagination.
0: Quite a set of ingredients, indeed. The multiple wave oscillator sounds like a crude precursor to brainwave entrainment devices that arrived later. Then factor in other details like Tesla having had entity encounters, how formative those were to his work.
1: So, yeah. So, he saw Tesla as definitely like his spirit guide, you know, as well as scientific guide. But as far as entrainment goes, you know, if you ever find any hard scientific info on that, please let me know because I listen to this entrainment thing every night to kind of go to sleep. And the jury is mixed on that. I think the uh, multiple wave oscillator thing is that put on a much more profound level
0: like on a dangerous level
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah depending upon the frequency level and then you know there's the whole dark side of all that too right like you got your harp and all that kind of
0: okay so van tassel is getting these downloads almost as though his very being becomes a lightning rod for these exotic sources how does he go about getting the requisite building materials out to assemble the Integratron.
1: Well, if you look at Southern California, Los Angeles, what do you have? You have a lot of people who want to be movie stars, and then you have uh, good-looking kids because their parents didn't become movie stars, but you also have a bunch of rich playboys who want to live forever. So George was able to harness uh, some of this money from some of these dudes who might fly out for the weekend and like help, hey, hey, we got this uh, crazy mad scientist out in the desert. Let's help fund him. And then he also had true believers. People moved out there to be around, uh, you know, as uh, Tron, who's one of the keepers of the dome now, says in the film, they moved uh, in the area to be around George and then you know it was like kind of like a little like Tom Sawyer's fence, you know he's uh, constantly looking for money because this is a, a giant machine, and we could talk about the you know you talk about the architectural aspects of it, and we certainly can do that because it is pretty awesome that. Costs a lot of money to do this stuff, even though as George was like, yeah, but we're kind of doing it wholesale. We're getting a lot of stuff donated. So eventually, he does these spacecraft conventions. In 1954, he holds the first interplanetary spacecraft convention. I think this is really important because there was no internet, obviously. As he said, the nearest phone was like miles away for a long time. So he brought all the contactees of the time. I'm sure you know about them and how other people speak about the contactees uh, come, came out to the desert and it became this kind of fun thing to do to get out to the desert. But also you're one person who's had an experience in Boise and you're another who's had one in Los Angeles and you're another who's had one, uh, God, I don't know, in San Antonio and you all come together. So instead of being like lone wing nuts, you get to actually swap information and also present that to the public. So he just asked for contributions from that, and that was pretty successful for a long time, these, these spacecraft conventions.
0: Yeah. In terms of contactees, I can't think of an earlier collective culture-forming initiative. He seems to have been ahead of the curve in this respect as well. These days, sure, you have thousands of people attending contact in the desert and other conventions, the internet uniting global tribes. But is it fair to characterize Van Tassel's convention as the first of its kind?
1: It was the first of its kind. And if I could get a little heady, because I'm reading something right now about this. You know, again, with the war and everything, there were some really smart people coming together to do logistics and create weapons against the Nazis and the Axis powers. So you have people like Norbert Wiener and cybernetics, the study of systems. There's this idea, and this book I'm reading right now traces it from these government led projects of cybernetics, which is like a self regulating system, it takes the feedback from the system, like, say, on a steam valve or something, and corrects it with each kind of revolution, and applying that to human behavior and scientific behavior. So instead of having this hierarchical level of control over work, all of a sudden you have this almost communitarian people slipping between disciplines, this kind of more cooperative style of working, which we can trace that from the people involved in the cybernetics of World War II into the hippies, we're going to do away with the hierarchy and into the internet, or at least the you know, how the internet started decentralization so I think you're right I think the the conventions were important on that level and also I I think as a filmmaker I guess visual anthropologist I find really interesting here is that George to me was like the first Aquarian leader the first hippie (laughs) he was all about peace and love and so was the alien message you know you get to these channelings some of my friends are into channelings and all that you get to the channelings and they're all kind of the same Love each other, you know, just same as Jesus and all that. But the stories around them are, are amazing. I love that aspect of it that I've just been reading about for my new project, which is this idea of hierarchies being broken down and coming into a more ecological system of cybernetics on a human level.
0: It evokes holarchies, which are integral systems of nested hierarchies.
1: Term, that sounds great.
0: I think you touched on a quizzical element of. The messaging from the Space Brothers, so to speak, the dissolution of hierarchies, which stirred fear among some in Western intelligence that the Space Brothers were communists, more or less, conflating the message of peace and love with a communist agenda. Is that how George ended up on the radar of certain security interests? How important was that, if at all?
1: I think you're definitely onto something. I mean, I will say that George himself put himself on the radar of the Feds. You know, back even before, a year or two before this happened, he had claimed to, I have no hard evidence of this, have contacted the government and told them that the saucers were going to buzz Washington, D.C. in 1952. And they did. And it's one of the craziest incidents. If you read about that, it's really one of the ones that there's no real explanation for. Right, right over the White House. In the film, we have a Bob Berman, who's not related to me, who's a esteemed astronomer talking about, well, it's not like they peer over the White House lawn. Well, actually, they did in 1952 or something did. And it was seen by military people and press people and, and regular people. And it's never been adequately explained. And George claims to have talked about that. And he sent a letter, he sent a letter to the feds. <laughs>
0: What must have been the implications for him to have notified the feds, UFOs will buzz the White House, and then they did. I believe that was multiple events, right? It happened over the course of multiple nights. I
1: think it was a couple of nights, but I think it definitely, you know, you're only as good as your adversary, right? So I think it definitely put him on Hoover's map, and you're absolutely right. Well, look at it. You have a bunch of kind of radical thinkers, decentralized thinkers, like we're saying, not like the Amish or something, but something completely different out in the desert, looking at alternative ways of being, you could say. And that was a problem. And of course, a lot of these organizations who from people like that thought were communist fronts. So they were watching him. And there's a huge FBI file on Van It's pretty fascinating that you can find, I think you can find online or you can find on our website, callingallearthlingsmovie.com. So yeah. Hoover was watching him and he would go in and he would take, you know, George had his buddy, Daniel Boone, who wound up marrying George's daughter, and they would go into L.A. and they would try to get the FBI uh, interested in some of this stuff. So they, they saw him as a, both like a threat and a possible nut. And then also, by the way, just a physical threat. Okay, so yeah, uh, we didn't talk that much about the mechanics of the machine, but you're talking about huge amounts of electricity that could blow the whole grid of Southern California.
0: That's not hyperbole, right? Let's go into the mechanics of the machine a bit, what it was supposed to tap into, some of its architectural features. There are some really fascinating details. We continue our in-depth conversation with Jonathan Berman in the Plus episode of Aliens and Artists where we delve into the mechanics of the Integratron, as well as Jonathan's own fascinating near-death experiences and sightings of unidentified craft. To hear the full Plus episode, as well as tons of other exclusive bonus material, become a Plus member of Aliens and Artists by clicking the link in the show notes. Your support allows us to keep making this podcast. Who are we? The Illuminati. Just kidding. We're skull and bones. Just kidding. We're the Bilderbergers. Just kidding. We're Knights Templar. Just kidding. We're Masons. Just kidding. We're Elks. Just kidding. We're Hotfellows. Just kidding. We're Knights of Pythias. Just kidding. We're Molly Maguires. Just kidding. We're the Eye of Providence masquerading as Yakuza. Just kidding. We're Illuminati. Just kidding. We're Shriners. Just kidding. Our true identity is only revealed to plus members. Plus. 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 1776, near death with a high fever and an unidentified illness. Jemima Wilkinson was about to unbecome. Loved ones were on around the clock death watch, anticipating Jemima's passing. And Jemima did pass, but not in a conventional fashion. When the fever finally broke, the person present in the body was no longer Jemima, but instead someone who would call themselves the public universal friend. Public Universal Friend reported having received revelations from two archangels, proclaiming there was, quote, room, 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 in the many mansions of the eternal glory, for thee and for everyone, end quote. This being who would spend the rest of their incarnation as a preacher, reported Jemima Wilkinson had ascended to heaven and that the body was now inhabited by the Public Universal Friend. Public, if I may invoke a congenial contraction, refused to respond to the name Jemima Wilkinson anymore and asked not to be referred to by gender pronouns, identifying as neither male nor female. And in the immortal words of P. Hilton, that's hot. The friend dressed in a generally androgynous manner. The friend traveled and preached free will, humility, and hospitality to all. The friend had few possessions, and had an ardent following among dozens of unmarried women. The friend's final preaching occurred in April of 1819, and departed this realm in July of the same year. What are we to make of this early instantiation of what appears to be a walk-in? One doesn't typically regard possession to be so loving and magnanimous. Maybe the world needs an influx of angelic walk-ins, to shift the balance to benevolence. Vessel of the real, unclutch your chalice, become the cup. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one work with me, Stuart Davis. Sessions include transpersonal hypnotherapy, creativity as a spiritual path, and more. Go to theliminalmuse.com to book a session or click the link in the show notes. Also... The Experiencer Group, an amazing private membership site for people who've had anomalous experiences of all kinds, including near death, out of body, precognition, lucid dreams, mediumship, remote viewing, missing time, contact with non human entities, abduction, and more. The site features lots of exclusive video and audio, meetups, and live events for members only. Click the link in the show notes to become a member and get one month free. The Experiencer Group, building positive anomalous culture.
2: Before the show, the show boat showered, shit and spit off of the shaft. She fed it, said it dad a frightening laugh. Took it to the gig where the crowd looked big. There's a gold.